Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Um, but my name is Stephen. I'm the student pastor here, and I'm super excited to be with you all this morning. And it seems like every time Bill asked me to preach, it's like right after um, a crazy life event. So last time I was up here, I don't know if y'all remember, I had gotten engaged the day before. Um, and now I'm standing before you, and I got married three weeks ago. So it's just a lot of life stuff going on. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, it's pretty exciting times. And, um, and this morning, I, like I said, I just want to kind of tell you a story. I feel like Jesus did a lot of that in his days. He uh, was born and he walked around and told stories and connected it back to who God was. And um, I had the honor and privilege of being able to go to Paris on my honeymoon. So I got a lot of history. So y'all get to learn a lot of that history today. This is actually going to be um, art history sermon. Not really. <laughs> I promise. But there will be a lot of history in this. And uh at the end of this, I hope that you can take something outside of this room and, and share it with someone. Because if you just come here and sit here and listen and leave and nothing has changed, then you've missed the point. Um, you might as well stay at home and take a nap. And so I pray that the Lord speaks to your heart this morning. And um, just real quick, I want to talk about my trip and, and kind of compare that to what we're going to look at in Scripture. Um, because I don't know if y'all know much about French kings. If you do, then you're a history buff and you probably need other hobbies. Um <laughs> No judgment. And King Louis XIV was a very popular king. He's very well known. He was the longest reigning monarch, even to today, in history. Uh, 72 years as king he reigned, um, which is crazy. He became king at the ripe old age of four. So if anybody tells you you can't do something because you're too young, hey, he was a king at four years old. Uh, you don't have to live up to that. So just try to get a job at 16. You can handle it, I promise. Uh, but he became king at four, and he was a unique young man. And in one scenario, this is kind of tragic, but uh, King Louis XIII, his dad and, and, and his wife, they tried for, I think, 23 years uh, to have a child. They had four or five stillbirths, and it just it wasn't going their way. And, you know, back then you have to have an heir, and the best way is to have a son. You don't want to pass it down to someone else. You want to keep it in your lineage. And so finally... Uh, they had a son that was born, and it was King Louis XIV. And he was, from the beginning, told he was chosen by God. And boy, did he take that to heart. Um, and his head and everything grew a lot faster than the rest of him did. And so growing up at the age of four, his dad passes away. He becomes king. And he lives in, and this is another little interesting fact that plays into this, the Louvre in Paris that a lot of people have heard about or been to. Did you know that used to be a palace? Like that's where the French kings used to live. And then it became a museum much later. Even before that, um, it was a, a place that was set up uh, to protect Paris. Uh, they would uh, house the army there and different people. And then it slowly built and eventually it became like 600 plus thousand square feet, like massive. And that was King Louis XIV's palace. That's where he lived. That was his house in the middle of Paris. And now being king, especially becoming king at four years old, um, insecurity wells up. Even though you have the right to a lot of pride, insecurity tends to well up because people don't want you to be king. I don't want a four-year-old king. Why would I want that? And so all these people, they had the, these thoughts of how the country should be run. And so they were planning and plotting left and right on how to kill this dude. And at four, what you going to do? You can't protect yourself. You can barely talk. 
And so his life, like they attempted to take it many times throughout his childhood. So this built up insecurity and fear of everybody. And it built up pride too, also even more and more. And so when I was just thinking about this, because we learned a lot of history from this amazing uh, tour guide named Clara or Clara, we couldn't figure it out. Her mother was a tour guide and they, they loved this stuff. They ate it up. She told us so much stuff. But before we jump into the rest of this story about King Louis XIV, um, I want to tell you kind of the point of today. The point of today is to look at our own lives and decide what our object of worship is. And at the end of this, it'll be a very obvious point, uh, define what the object of worship is. And so King Louis XIV was an extravagant king and he was plagued by insecurity. That's how he lived his life was insecurity. But before we get into more of King Louis the 14th, I want to read you the story of a biblical king very quick. You don't have to turn here. Um, later we'll be in the book of Matthew and Luke quite a lot, um, but I'm just going to read you this reference. So just listen as I read. This is another king that would be an extravagant king that most of us have heard of. And Daniel chapter one, I think I got the reference messed up. It might be Daniel chapter three, verse one. Um, but anyways, it says King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. Now, pause real quick. Everybody look up at the ceiling. That ceiling is about 45 feet above you. So that kind of gives you a reference of how big this statue was. That ceiling is very high and it was over double that height. He had the statue built. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So the sound of the musical instruments, so at the sound of all the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And there's some buzzwords in here. Race, nation, language, bow to the statue. Every knee should bow and tongue proclaim that he is Lord. Nebuchadnezzar had it a little mixed up. Nebuchadnezzar was just a normal sized man, so he stood off in the distance. But if a horn sounded, they wouldn't be able to spot him. So the remedy to that, 90 foot tall gold statue. No matter where you are, you can see that. Could you imagine double the height of the ceiling anywhere you were in this town? They didn't have skyscrapers in that time. You would just look up, and if you heard music, you had to get down on your knee, look up at that statue, and praise and worship. It was the object of worship, and if you did not worship it, if you know the rest of the story, they pick you up from where you are and throw you in a furnace, and you burn. You're done. You have no other options of worship at that point. Your life has ended. He saw himself as the object of worship, and so he made it known. Now, I... I feel like I'm pretty good with numbers, but I really struggle with this because I was really curious this amount of gold, how much it would be worth in today's terms. And I came up with two numbers very drastically different. Um, so the first one that I came up with seems kind of realistic. And it was like five hundred million dollars worth of gold. But then I realized that gold's like really, really dense. And we're talking 90 foot tall. So I tried to find like the, the I don't even remember the uh, 
word I'm looking for, but I came up with like 4 million pounds. You multiply that by 16 ounces and you multiply that by the price of gold. And that number came out to be like 54 billion. That's, uh, that's billion, not million, billion. That's a lot of billions, 54 of them. $54 billion worth of gold, just so when somebody played a harp, everybody in the room would have to get down on their knees and point their worship to that statue which directed it to King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the object of his own worship. Now, let's fast forward where King Louis XIV, he took it to a whole nother level. This dude's living in a 600,000 square foot palace in the middle of Paris, the city to be in. But he got nervous because there was people that wanted to take his life. And he got a little tired, didn't have quite enough room in the 1,700-bedroom uh, mansion that he was in. So he undertook this project. And he got an architect. And if you've ever heard of it, it's called Versailles. Versailles is about 15 miles outside of Paris proper. And at the time, it was just a few trees and swampland. And I think his granddaddy's hunting lodge. There was nothing there, no town, no city. And for 20 years, he had people build this palace called Versailles for himself. The roof ornately decorated with gold. And back then it was pure gold. The windows, gold decoration, the walls, the fence, the posts at the top of the fence, all decorated in gold. In the back, he built this garden over like 2,000 acres for himself. And one of the, the main fountains in the middle um, was, it was a goddess of Leto, or there's a couple different terms for her. She was a Greek goddess, and they were still really big into the Greek culture. And so right there, right out of his window where he could see, there was this fountain, and they didn't have pumps back then. We'll get to that in a minute. And in the middle of it was this goddess Leto, solid gold. All around were little figurines and statues. She was known for cursing men and turning them into frogs. So there's these half men, half frog uh, creatures kind of trying to get to her, but they're, they're forever solid. They're forever stuck in solid gold and can't make any progress towards their goal, which was this goddess. All solid gold. There's gold literally everywhere. And this one is even bigger. 600 and something thousand square feet. Let's up it a little bit. They're closer to like 700,000 square feet. And in a little bit of reference, uh, we came up with a number. I could be way off, but the entirety of North Monroe Baptist Church, the main, the big hallways, the west, the east, all the classrooms, upstairs, downstairs, kids town, you name it. Well, I, I think we came up with a number like 150,000, 200,000 square feet. So we're talking three to four times. Look, y'all, I get winded. Sometimes I, for, I get to my car over here and I forget my keys in the student center and I got to walk all the way around the church. That's a trek, y'all. If you need a workout, just walk around the church. It's like a mile around the property. And it's three to four times that size. And this is his palace. And here's where this is the term that we used every time we saw it. We would just look at it. The phrase was just the audacity to move 15 miles away from your kingdom and build a structure like this for yourself. And here's where it gets a little crazy to me. This is where it just gets maniacal. There were these three ceremonies during the day that King Louis XIV required all of the highest level people to be at, well over 100 people. And in the morning, King Louis XIV would do what we all do. He would wake up. He would get ready for the day. But he would do something a little different. He would move out of his actual bedroom into a fake bedroom that was set up. And he would put these hundred plus officials 
uh, officers and lords of other kingdoms in the hallway and in the room surrounding him, and they would stand there in silence. This was called the Grand Levy. And they would watch him wake up. Like, not even for real, a fake wake up ceremony. They would watch him wake up. And that, this is absurd. Now, could you imagine that? You wake up and your eyes kind of crack in the morning and they still got some crusties in them. And you look and there's about 150 people in silence standing there watching you. And you planned it? You crazy. Halfway through the day, very important portion of the day, lunch. Can I get an amen? That's where we're all going after this. He would go in his room by himself, sit at a table that was probably or, or, ornately decorated and lots of great food. And behind him would stand 150 plus lords and rulers of the area. And they would watch him. They couldn't talk unless they were spoken to. Take bite after bite after bite and just watch him eat lunch. Then, now this is the crazy one. At night, the petite levy. You can kind of see where we're going, but there's one little facet of this story that I find very intriguing. He would go into his room. Same people would surround him. And they would watch him get dressed, washed, cleaned, shaved, and uh, lay down in bed and watch him go to sleep. But here's the crazy part. This was an honor to stand in this room. This meant that the king would see you. And if he saw you, that would give you importance. And if he learned your name, that elevated you to the next tier. That gave you the opportunity to potentially ask for land or a crown or a, hand, a woman's hand in marriage or, or just money or whatever. But one person had a very special role for the king that day. He would be summoned up there next to the king to hold the chamber pot of the king. Now, if that's code for toilet. And he would hold it for the king while the king relieved himself before going to bed. And then he would be responsible, have the high duty of, oh, duty, that's a weird word, go and, <laughs> and empty that chamber pot. And he got to get close to the king. He got to get close to the object of worship for that day. And then he would get back in line and he would stand and he would watch as the king went to sleep. And the king's motivation was if I can keep these people busy, they can't plot to take my throne. And it seemed to work because he was king for 72 years, which is still a record. Um, queen Elizabeth hadn't even caught him yet. She's still got several years before she catches him. Because the idle hands are the devil's playground, as they say. So this man, dubbed the son king, everything ornately decorated in gold objectified himself before his whole kingdom through insecurity and pride as the object of worship. Oh, I know how he just wanted to stand and say at the name of King Louis the 14th, every knee should bow and every tongue profess that King Louis the 14th is the one true king. Oh, he wanted to say it so badly. And there's so many more details I could tell you, but we really need to move on because I could talk about this crazy guy forever. Uh, later on, his humanism was very much proven. A doctor found a small black dot on his calf, which was gangrene. And over the course of a few weeks or months, he lost his life at the age of 76, living in his 700,000 plus square foot 
palace on 2,000 acres of ornately decorated gardens that were designed for him with fountains that they created just so he could look at them. He even built a, a holiday home right around the corner on this lake thing that he built that's a mile long with um, uh, Italian gondola workers and Italian gondolas that would take him to his holiday home because this palace just wasn't good enough. He was the center of his own universe. And the things that would describe him again would be insecurity, pride, doubt, selfishness, isolation. So let's fast forward. Let's talk about a group of people that I think we all have heard about at least once. And if you haven't, you're going to know a little bit about them after this. And that's called the Pharisees. So see, King Louis XIV's object of worship was himself. When he looked in the mirrors back then, he was looking at his very own object of worship. And he wanted that to be the same object for everyone else. Now, the Pharisees, they didn't just make it all about themselves in a big, bolsterous way. They sought knowledge and followed rituals. And in doing that, got clout, if you will, and became the religious leaders of the day. Everyone aspired to be like them. Everyone aspired to follow them. They were self-righteous scholars plagued by ritual, plagued by law. And that is how they worshiped. I want to read you this. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 23. Um, we're about to read a lot out of Matthew chapter 23. And I just want the scripture. I want you to hear these words that Jesus spoke to these men who, if you asked them or if you thought about them back in that day, had it all figured out. They were the people that other people looked up to and thought, man, they're doing it right. And if I can do what they're doing, then I'll get into heaven because they know what's going on. And here's what Jesus said about them in Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse one. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. They patting themselves on the back. This guy says he's God, but we know he's not. And he said, we're the official interpreters. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but do not follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra long tassels. And they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. I mean, you can hear it in Jesus' voice. Self-righteousness was the defining aspect of these men's lives. They just wanted to sit at the head seat of the table. They wanted to be called teacher. They wanted to be called revered, loved because of how close they were to God. And this is what Jesus thought about them. These are some of the harshest words that you will ever read in scripture. And it's talking to the self-righteous people. Because in reality, there's some people that are, they look like they're so close to God. And in reality, they're the farthest away you could ever imagine. And that's who these people would be. Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. What sorrows awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Verse 15, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. 
Verse 16, blind gods, what sorrow awaits you? For you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that it is binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Verses 23 and 24, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb garden, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Look, this next one slapped me in the face. Verse 25, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Verse 29, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build tombs for the prophets and your ancestors killed. And you decorate the monuments of the godly people your ancestors destroyed. Listen to the, I I can't even use the term harshness because there's love in that. Hypocrites, you teachers of the law, self-righteous, only concerned about lifting yourself up and dragging other people down. The way you disciple them gets them closer to God, but in reality drives a wedge between them and God that makes it so difficult to see because they've checked the boxes. They come to church on Sundays. They come to church on Wednesdays. They make appearances at the temple. They tithe 10% of their herbs, but they forget to love and have compassion and mercy and all these other things that, that are who Jesus is. He was harsh. And I think the scenario that paints it the most beautiful, that really brings it home is in Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. This story is a beautiful story that really drives home who the Pharisees are and who we as Christ followers should be like. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 10, it says this, Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank God that I am not like other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And to end the story, Jesus says, I tell you this, sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We read a story of Jesus calling out the Pharisees and then it's called the seven woes and he tells them these are all of the things that are counterproductive to the mission of God in the gospel of me. He doesn't say that definitively, but he's talking about himself. 
that justice and mercy and love are the things that reign supreme and that the rules are important, but they're there to show us just how unlike God we are, just how sinful we are. But despite that sin, salvation is possible through Christ and Christ alone. Because imagine this scenario. There's so many of you in here struggling. You're going through something, you're fighting something, you're wrestling with something familiar or health or whatever it may be. And can you imagine being in this day and age and walking into the temple? Because at that point, there was only one location you could go to worship God, and that was the temple. The Holy Spirit hadn't been freely given because the sacrifice of Jesus hadn't happened yet at this point in history. These stories are being told. They're not on paper yet. And imagine walking in there, a tax collector hated by everyone and hurting and burdened. And you see off in the distance, a Pharisee. I've never met a Pharisee before. They're the religious leaders. Man, I wonder if I could bump into this guy and just talk to him for just a second. Like, I want to I ask how he got where he got. Those robes are really long and that prayer box is huge. I really want to meet that guy. Maybe he can give me the answers to what life is supposed to be like. He's not hated, but I am. And as you approach this man, well-dressed and ordained by God, you hear coming out of his mouth with his head lifted towards heaven and his hands raised, I thank you, God, that I am not like these other people. I especially thank you that I'm not like that tax collector because I fast twice a week. He fasted once last year. I give a tenth of my income. He only gives like 4%. I thank God I'm not like him. And then you hear that from the person you're supposed to look up to. And you go sit down and your head just falls. And you pray, God have mercy on me for I am a sinner. And Jesus would look at those two people and say that the Pharisee walked away not justified because his prayer was boastful and prideful. But that the tax collector that was hated by all was loved by God. And that he walked away justified because his heart was broken and he knew there was only one thing in that moment that could mend it. Because you see, King Louis XIV was plagued by insecurity and pride. The Pharisees, they were plagued by self-righteousness and ritual. Those were their objects of worship. And the tax collector was plagued by sin, just like they were. But they didn't put themselves at the center. They realized that there had to be something more. Because the Pharisees, they were the center of their own universe. Plagued by insecurity, pride, doubt, selfishness, isolation, and ritual. But there's something crazy that happens. You see, all of these people were plagued by things that are innately sin. But the lost person that comes to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, they're plagued by freedom. That's the defining aspect of their life. And it wasn't by anything that they did. It was by God's actions alone. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross that they would see not much later in history. 
that they were so broken that they needed something besides themselves to fix everything. And they looked to the one true object of worship, Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit. And they found salvation in the book of Matthew back in chapter 6. These are the things that it tells us. And this is the thing I want to end on and I want you to hear. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 and 21, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The heart of King Louis XIV, his treasure was in that palace and people worshiping him. The Pharisees, their treasure was just following the rituals, following the rules. If I check box one through ten, I'm good to go. But the tax collector's ritual was brokenheartedness, fear, and doubt. And focus, finally, on the one true king. Because the Pharisees focused on cleaning the outside and making it look good, but on the inside, they just a bag of bones. But the tax collector on the outside, he didn't look so good. But on the inside, God made him clean. And in Matthew chapter 6, a little bit farther on, verses 25 to 34, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any, of, any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do, you not, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. I want you to listen closely to these last two verses. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And I don't know if you heard that, so I'm going to read it one more time, because you need to hear this. The object of worship in your life is paramount to who you will be. And if it is not rightly focused on the only object of worship, your life will be defined and plagued by things that are not of God. So introspectively look at yourself and decide when you look in a mirror, are you looking at your own object of worship? When you look at your bank account, are you looking at your own object of worship? When you look at your skills or your mind or the people that follow you, are you looking at your object of worship or are you focused on the most beautiful thing that has ever happened in history? Because to change this just a little bit, it says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. Worry will not define your life anymore. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. It says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And let's just, let's just bring it in a little bit tighter. Seek first the gospel of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. 
because that is the true object of worship. If you are here today and you are struggling and your mind is not on the things that it should be on, I pray that you are brokenhearted. And I pray that you say a prayer just like the tax collector did. Because you think you're despised and hated by your own self, much less by others. But God looks at you and sees a heart right for the picking. Because God can heal anyone. He healed mine. And when Jesus died, he healed his. And he rose from the grave and said, I am with you forever and always, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should proclaim that he is God. And that is scripture. So seek first Jesus and his sacrifice. Quit storing up things in earthly ways and pursue justice and mercy and love and patience and peace and kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and focus on God because the brokenhearted are so much closer to salvation than the self-righteous could even dream about. So I don't know what you're going through, but if you need something to fix it, today's the day. One of the most beautiful moments in my life was watching my 70-year-old grandmother get saved and baptized. It's never too late. So I'm going to pray for us real quick, and then we'll dismiss in just a minute. But if you would, bow your heads. Father God, I thank you for every individual in this room. Father, I thank you for the truth of Scripture that we can look at things past to remind us where our focus should be. Father, that no matter where we are and how far we feel like we are from you, we can stop now. Lift up our voices to you and pray, God, have mercy on me for I am a sinner. And you will be faithful to forgive that, that you can never be too far gone to give your life to Jesus Christ. And I pray that wherever people's objects of worship are, that they would be refocused on you and your son and the Holy Spirit and what that means. And that today they would simply say, God, save me. I need you. Father, thank you. It's in your son's holy name. I pray all these things through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.